whenever um, I prepare a message, I always find that my words or my thoughts or my writings and jottings always fall far short of what I really believe that God is worthy of. And so I just want to start by praying. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you have come to live inside each one of us. The Father's gift. And I pray this morning that whatever I say, whether I say it well or whether I say it badly, you will be pleased to just take your words and just place them in our hearts, drawing us closer to Jesus and, and being in awe of who God is for your purposes to bring glory to him. So bring glory to him this morning, we pray, as we stand and look at your word and just go over some thoughts that I prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. I was going to ask Daryl for a song before, just before I preached, and I forgot all about it. So, but the song I had in mind was How Great Is Our God. And one couple of lines particularly from that song goes, From age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end. And what does it mean? Time is in his hands. However we try to describe or convey the greatness of God, I believe it's a subject that is far beyond our ability to describe. And as I said earlier, the, the words that we use and the thoughts that come into our heads always fall way short of who God is. We cannot even comprehend his greatness. We cannot grasp it, and if we can't comprehend it, how, how, how can we possibly describe it or convey it? <clears throat> we can talk about his attributes, his wonderful grace, his amazing love, his perfect justice and righteousness, for God is perfect in all of his ways. His amazing power and the mind-blowing beauty of the creation, the physiology of the creation. but our words and our description fall far short of the reality of who he is. And so we stand, I trust we stand, in awe of him this morning. The verse came to me earlier, I, can't, I haven't had a chance to look it up, I meant to, but David says, he says, I've quieted my heart before you. Because sometimes, oftentimes, you know, our thoughts just need to be stilled as we meditate upon who God really is. And if after meditation you sort of believe that you've got some sort of grasp of his greatness, then I'm afraid you haven't. 
But if you do think you have, then you have to grapple with the fact that he has no beginning and he has no ending. And that's what I wanted to speak a bit about time in relation to God. Time. I was a bit late giving Jonathan the, the scriptures, but I don't know whether you've managed to sort them out, Jonathan, or not. But, <laughs> but Psalm 106 and verse 48 says this in the New Living Translation. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. Good picture. <laughs> I like the stained glass. God is infinite in every way. Infinity is that which is boundless, endless, and greater, larger than any natural number. That's a definition. And I read this, since the time of the ancient Greeks, the philosophical nature of infinity was the subject of many discussions among the philosophers. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? You'd think, well, you can have a short discussion about infinity, but it was actually a subject which they delved into and discussed at length. Because infinity, in actual fact, we get so used to the word, but infinity is an incredible thing that we cannot actually grasp. We cannot grasp infinity, the idea that something never had a beginning and it will never have an ending. And of course we're talking about God because God has no beginning and God has no ending. And we can't comprehend with that because we think something must, whatever it is, must come to an end at some point in time. But God never does. He never does. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And because he is from everlasting to everlasting, he is outside of time. We speak of something being timeless, but nothing is actually timeless except God himself. And he is timeless. Only God is truly timeless. Time is something we cannot associate with God's existence, except that he's the creator of time. He's the creator of time. Yes, time had a beginning. Paul, writing to Timothy, speaks about the grace of God which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. So God created time for mankind to live in time. But he is outside of time. So we know that God created time and God has a program in time which he set in motion in the beginning. You go to Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, everything, in the beginning God, everything began with God. Everything began with God. Time began with him and created, and he created the heavens and the earth. Many times in scripture, God is referred to as the creator of heaven and earth. And in one place it says he was the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. And that's something we can't really imagine. The creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. We sing sometimes, don't we? We were watching a, a debate recently on YouTube. It was the Hoover Institution. Institute, Hoover Institute. And um, it was between St Dr. Stephen Mayer. You may have heard of him. He's a very bright Christian, but he's also a scientist and a philosopher. 
And Douglas Murray, you've heard of maybe Douglas Murray. He's a very intelligent man, but an agnostic. And a chap called Tom Hollander, who I don't really know, but I, I get the impression he's, a, he's an agnostic as well. But, you know, they were debating the existence of God. And Stephen Mayer, he, he was talking about the incredible detail inside every single living cell, which is in our bodies. He said the chances of that being of ev that evolving is like trying to find one atom in a universe ten times as big as ours. In other words, it's impossible that these things could have evolved. They were created by God. And the information in every cell is, well, I won't try to describe it because I'm not a scientist, but it's, it's just mind-blowing. But the one thing they didn't discuss, which is interesting, because you can, discuss, you, can, you can discuss the existence of God, but the, the crunch comes when you discuss who was Jesus. Who was he? And I won't go into that altogether now, but it's just interesting that these people, they never asked that question, who was Jesus? Because you have to come to a decision as to who was Jesus. And that actually undergirds the whole truth of who God is. I've been reading through the Old Testament again and marvelling again at the creation, culminating in the creation of man in God's image. Man and woman, it says, he created man and woman in his image. And the way that God looked upon that creation, and you know, every day of creation, God looked and he said it was very, and he looked and it was good. But when he created man and added man to his creation, he said, and he looked and behold, it was very good. God created man in a very special way. It, he, man is the only one of whom it is said that God breathed into him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. No, no other creation is referred to in that way except man and woman. He breathed into them, their nostrils, the breath of life, and they became a living soul because God wanted... and. It was interesting what Dave said as he introduced the communion. In actual fact, God wanted relationship with his creature. He wanted relationship. That's why he created man, to relate to him, to respond to him. So that they could communicate and respond to him as their creator. But, and I know what I'm going to say is well known to many of you, but maybe not all of you. But if you know your Bibles, you'll know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered the world. Paul, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, verse 12. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Everyone sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, their disposition changed. Their nature became sinful, and sadly, we have inherited that sinful nature. I remember hearing as a young person a story of this chap, and he was bemoaning the fact that Adam had sinned, and if it hadn't been for Adam's sin, we wouldn't all be in this mess, he was saying. And so the, 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 the pastor of his church invited him to tea one day, and, and um, it was a lovely table set out with food and everything, and I don't know whether you remember those things, those sort of dome-shaped meat covers. We, we used to have one. I think we were given it. It was silver, but I'm, I'm sure my parents didn't buy it. But um, 
and there was this, in the middle of the table, there was this big meat cover, and, and the pastor, the, the vicar said, the pastor rather, said, I've just got to pop out, but he said, just, just make yourself at home. But one thing don't do, don't lift that meat cover, will you? Because that was a surprise under there. And uh, so he went out, and um, the chap sat there, and he sat, and he looked, and he wondered, and, and, it, and eventually he couldn't hear anything, no movement from outside the room, so he just quickly just lifted the meat cover slightly and out ran a little white mouse. <laughs> and, of course, he couldn't catch it. And the pastor came back, and he said, uh, he said, what, 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 why are you looking so worried? He said, well, I have to admit, I lifted the cover, and the mouse ran out. And he said, there, you see, you see, you were no better than Adam, were you? You disobeyed my instruction. And, you know, in, within each of our hearts, there is that disobedience, that rebellion against... I can remember it as a young person rebelling against what God demanded of me. Well, when I say demanded, what he, he requested of me in terms of my love for him. I wanted to rule my own life. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. So that sinful nature is within us all. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? It is beyond cure, the NIV says. We tend to think that I'm not really that bad, but of course we compare ourselves with those we think are worse than us, don't we? But actually when we get an understanding of the holiness of God and, and his abhorrence of sin and disobedience and so on, then we start to see how far we fall short of his glory. As Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that inexpressible glory and holiness that God is. We are way, way up, so far away from that. As the NIV says, the heart, human heart is beyond cure. Beyond cure. So going back to the Old Testament, after Adam and Eve's disobedience, of course, mankind plummeted very quickly into evil and wickedness. We only get to chapter 6 of Genesis when we read in verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That's a, it's a, it's a damning um, description, isn't it? The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry, it goes on. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Or as the NIV says, his heart was deeply troubled. Or another version says, his heart was full of pain because of the sin of mankind. And so, what did he do? He chose Noah. He destroyed all living being on the earth. And he, except for Noah, as we know, we know the story of Noah and the ark, don't we, so well. But he chose Noah, who the Bible says was a righteous man and his family. He chose a righteous man who walked with God to build the ark. And God said, I'm going to start again. I'm going to destroy all this wickedness and evil upon the earth, and I'm going to start again with a righteous man and his family. And God made these wonderful promises to Noah. I love these promises. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Nothing can interrupt God's purpose and plan. 
we stress about climate change, don't we, and global warming and all the rest of it. God has everything in control. Everything in control. He will destroy the earth when he ordains it and not before. Man will never destroy the earth. <clears throat> and until that day, that promise will stand. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. <clears throat> but as we go into chapter 9, the very first event recorded after the waters have subsided and the ark has come to rest and, and Noah releases the animals and he and his family get out, the very first event that's recorded is this. Noah gets himself drunk. And he lies in his tent uncovered. And his youngest son Ham, or his middle son Ham, comes in and sees his nakedness. And he goes out and spreads the news amongst his brothers and ended up by Noah cursing his son Ham. And you sort of think, what a tragedy. God's purpose here again seems to be foiled in as much as he started again with a righteous man. And yet immediately that righteous man falls into sin and his sons. <clears throat> So we see, again, sin rears its ugly head. But we move on and see God calling Abraham out of an idolatrous people because he wants a, pers a person, a man, who will walk in faith. And he will raise from him a nation of people who will bring blessing to the nation and observe his laws and rules and regulations because of his holiness. We think they're arbitrary, but in actual fact, God's holiness is something we perhaps cannot fully understand when he set before the people the things he wanted them to do. To walk in his ways and to be obedient to his instructions. And so under Moses, he gives them the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? And following that, he gives other laws and instructions. And Moses said this to them in Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. I read this recently. Moses says, And if we are careful to obey this law, before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So there was a way. There was a way in which man could walk in right relationship with God by obeying his commands and walking in his ways and fulfilling his instructions. That will be our righteousness, said Moses. But of course, history shows that sadly, instead of walking in faith and obedience, they, for the large part, lived in unfaithfulness and rebellion. I read through Jeremiah recently, and so much of that story is of rebellion, idolatry, unfaithfulness, and disobedience among the people of God. You sort of think, can they really, having seen the, 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 um, the miracles that God did, the deliverance from Egypt, and so on, could they really have turned away so quickly and indulged in all this evil and rebellion against a faithful God? And yet that sinful heart is in each one of us by nature. And God became so angry at one point that he said to Moses, Moses, stand aside because I'm going to destroy this people. I cannot bear to look upon this evil and this sin and this disobedience anymore. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses said, don't do that. He says, don't do that. He says, people will look on from around and they'll say, look, he brought them out of Egypt, but he hasn't been able to fulfill his promise He's going to destroy them in the wilderness. And so God listened to Moses. 
and withheld his judgment, judgment which was justly deserved because of their evil. And they were walking in idolatry and serving other gods and idols and everything else that God had expressly forbidden that they shouldn't do. I wonder whether God was testing Moses to see what Moses would say. We don't know, but maybe he was, for God in his mind had the ultimate plan of salvation. Man had done his worst, I suppose. I was going to say his best, but he, he, he proved incapable of keeping God's commands and walking in God's ways and loving God for who he was and his blessings and mercies. But God had the most amazing plan. And that plan had been in his, his calendar, if I can say that reverently, from before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time. God had this plan, and it's written in Galatians chapter 4, and verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And that scripture, I don't know, it's been on my heart for a while, that God in his perfect timing had a plan for our salvation. And in the fullness of time, or another version says, when the time had fully come, God sends forth his son. And his son is the full answer to the need of man. God had looked upon, he'd seen the failure of man to do anything that he wanted them to do. And sin was rife and filling the earth. And as we look at that verse, piece by piece, there are some wonderful truths here. When the fullness of time had come. Did God, did the plight of man ever take God by surprise? No, never. Because we speak, we hit, listen to uh, the verse of scripture which says, from the beginning of the world, from before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. So God knows, God, he's, there's no beginning, there's no end, he's outside of time and he knows exactly what is going to happen, but he knows that there's one way to bring people into right relationship with him, and that is to do away with their sin, do away with their rebellion by paying the penalty himself. And so by justice, but by upholding justice, he can also have mercy. We used to sing an old hymn when I was a boy. So God could not pass the sinner by. Justice demands that he must die but in the cross of Christ I see how God can just yet righteous be. I think I've got it right. I'm surely pretty sure it's right. So in the cross of Christ, he, his justice is met because sin is dealt with and Jesus pays the penalty for the sins of the world. I love that verse from John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So justice is, justice is done, and yet God can equally have mercy on all who turn to him. He didn't want a relationship with a creature that had been programmed to love him, to obey him. He wanted a, a people who responded to him in true love and affection for all that he'd done. But in order to achieve that, he had to give man a free will. He gives man a free will, a, a will whereby man can choose what he wants to do. God is no God who forces 
affection on people, his affection for him on people, but he gives the right to choose. He wanted a man, man to have free will, to choose to love, to choose to obey, to respond voluntarily to his goodness and his blessings and his love. But man chose to disobey, to spurn the love of his maker. And so when the fullness of time had come, as another version puts it, after at just the right time, God sends forth his son, who will be the answer, the perfect answer. Why did he do it? Because he was longing for this relationship. He was longing for this relationship because he loved the world so much, John 3 says. Secondly, in that, that verse, he was born of woman. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7, and I didn't give Jonathan this scripture, so I'll quickly just read a bit. It's a, it's a scripture that is a, it's a beautiful scripture. Hebrews 10, verse 5. He, referring to all the sacrifices that went on in the Old Testament. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And you know, he was born of woman. God prepared a body for him. And he came and grew up. We tend to think of Christ, don't we, in Jesus. And I, don't, I tend to think of him as a grown man. But when I think of the, the helpless nature of a tiny baby, and this was God himself, confined to a tiny human baby. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, Graham Kendrick wrote. Anyway, I must press on. And then it goes on, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was the one who actually was born under the law that man could never keep. He was born under the law and yet he fulfilled every bit of the law, and he never sinned in any way. He was tempted, the Bible says he, in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way, just as we are. That's difficult to appreciate, that Jesus could be tempted with the same temptations of each one of us, and yet without sin. And it goes on to redeem those under the law. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and yet they took him and crucified him. And in dying, he paid the penalty, sin's penalty, for all those that were under the law. So that they might receive the adoption of sons. That's a beautiful thought. The adoption of sons. I know, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've told this story before, but a little boy in the playground who was adopted and his, his peers were making fun of him and saying, you know, hey, you're adopted. You, you know, that's not your real mum and dad. And he said, well, he says, your mum and dad got lumbered with you. He says, but my parents chose me. And I thought, what a beautiful picture that God and his mercy has chosen us, chosen before the foundation of the world to be adopted. No right to be adopted, but God in his love adopted us as his sons and daughters. And then he goes on, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So God's desire is fulfilled. He has a people who love him for what he has done, for who he is, who respond to his amazing love, to him who loved us in spite of our sin and rebellion. 
and he now counts us as righteous before him. The gospel is the amazing truth, amazing truth of, of God's mercy and justice and yet, ju and yet grace and forgiveness, whereby we can stand now counted before him as righteous. Rome Paul puts it, as we look to the future, we have an amazing destiny, and this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. He says, for God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so that's our destiny, that God wants to conform us and make us into the image of his Son. Can we cope? Can we get our heads around that? We should be conformed not by our own efforts, but by the grace and mercy of God that changes our hearts and makes us long and love God. What a purpose for each one of us, we believe, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What a destiny. And then in God's timing, there's one more thing, one more wonderful date in God's calendar, when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns. He's coming to rapture his bride, the church, Paul says, and then we shall be forever with the Lord. You can read that scripture yourselves in 1 Thessalonians 4. Are we ready? Can I ask you, are you ready for Jesus' return? I was just thinking, visualizing, you know, and, and thinking of Jesus looking down and seeing his church and wondering, are they ready? Are they waiting for me? Are they longing with expectation that day when I come? Or are they busy? I was, I was touched by what Rick shared earlier on. He's jealous for his bride. He's jealous for his bride. And is he going to look down and see a bride that is fully occupied with earthly things and not occupied with that glorious event when he returns to take them? Can we cope with the idea? Our minds, can we grasp the idea of being forever with the Lord? And yet, I believe sometimes we have our heads down rather than our heads up. We're not looking up for his coming. We're looking down at the world and we're seeing the problems and the issues in the world. And as Rick said, we're looking, studying our symptoms when the answer of all our problems is actually in Christ himself. And in that day, we should be made whole and perfect before God. When we see him, John says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think you don't need me to tell you about all the stuff that's going on in the planet, in the nations, and in the church. You know, the, the, the confusion in the Church of England, for instance, is, is, is astonishing, really. The division. Justin Welby says his, he sees his plan as holding everything in unity. Well, that's a joke, isn't it, really? Because there's such disunity. Because Man has taken his eye off the truth. And you know, there's only one thing that unites us, and it's the truth. Jesus unites us because he is the truth. But you know, when you take your eyes off Jesus, then all the earthly things and the ideas of man, the ideologies come in, and, and we think we can make our own way. But I'm not the only one who believes that Jesus is coming soon. Just watching a, a, 
a YouTube thing with Francis Chan. And he was saying that he and many others, he says, I'm not the only one, but there is a general feeling that Jesus is coming soon. And you know, I want to be one who's ready, waiting. I want to be one who gets up and says, maybe today. And everything I do and the way I live, I want it to be in a way that I won't be ashamed when he comes. You know, we sang, didn't we, in that last song, you will always have my heart, you will always have my heart, only you, or something like that. And I think it's easy to sing things like that, isn't it? And it's not wrong because they're, they're beautiful words. But can we promise the Lord our hearts, our, all our hearts? He wants to come for a bride who's in desperately in love with him, who's waiting for him, who's got his, their eye on his coming. So we need to talk about it. We need to sing about it. And it's interesting, We've, I believe one or two of the newest songs actually are, are mentioning when he comes again, because it's the greatest event, short of his first coming. It'll be the greatest event in history. <clears throat> and if we have our eyes on him, it will spur us on to holy living, godly living. We need to be those who are walking humbly before our God, who are prepared to stand for the truth, because it's the truth. Jesus said these words, which... A very solemn words, actually. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? And it's almost a question which the answer seems to be, well, there'll be some faith, but will most people's faith have become adulterated or diluted or even disappeared? Because Jesus wants, when he comes, he wants to find a people who are walking and living in faith. When I was a boy, I know I keep quoting hymns from when I was a boy, but um, when you're a boy, you remember things a lot better than me when you get older, so I can't remember the new ones, but I can remember the old ones. But it was like, it used to go like this, in hope we lift our wishful longing eyes, waiting to see the glorious sun arise. How bright, how awesome will his advent be when he shines forth in radiant majesty. And that glory and that majesty of his coming will be something that will eclipse everything in that day, I believe. And we shall rise and we shall be with him forever if we walk in faith, if we've received Jesus as saviour, if we've accepted the fact that Jesus is the only answer to our plight. He's the only answer to our sin. He's the only answer to our rebellion. God, Jesus has taken upon himself the sins of all those who trust him. And you can walk in if you can walk in obedience and faith in Jesus, then you can walk in the assurance that when he comes, we will rise, the church will rise, the true church will rise. You know, and I want to be those, I want to be among the wheat. You know, Jesus told a parable, didn't he? His farmer planted the field and the workers came back to him and said, look, there's a whole load of wheat and there's, there's tares mixed in with the wheat. What should we do? And Jesus says, leave it, because when I come, and I'm paraphrasing it, but when I come, it'll all be harvested together, and the wheat will be put here, and the tares will be burned. So it almost implies that 
there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of falsehood in the last days. There'll be a lot of stuff that's going on which is not of the truth. But Jesus says, when I come, there'll be perfect justice. I will know what's true and I will know what's false. And the true will be gathered up with me and the false will be discarded and burned. Let's be those, brethren, who, who are prepared to stand for the truth and love Jesus with all of our hearts and refute anything which is of man. Because man, we've seen it, I've seen it in my lifetime, big time, when man gets in the ascendancy and takes glory to himself and his end is destruction and, and, and chaos within the church. So we need to, we sing, don't we, about giving all the glory to Jesus. And that's right, because he's the only one that's worthy of all the glory and all the honor and the praise and the adoration. And he will have it forever. And if we're true to him, we will stand with him in glory. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thought. So I just leave those thoughts with you. I'm, I'm conscious in these, my increasing age, that I tend to ramble a bit. And... Uh, <laughs> But you know, I'm not that old. But um, I hope the Holy Spirit can take something and, and use it, that the church will be a, a pure vessel waiting for the return of Jesus, the bridegroom. Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel. We thank you for the wonderful way of salvation that you have provided. Lord, we praise and worship you for your death, your resurrection, and the fact that you've taken our sins away. And Lord, I just pray that within each of our hearts there will be a longing after you to the exclusion of everything of the world, everything which is of, of the world and the pleasures of the world. Lord, may they dwindle into insignificance in the light of your glory and grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>